The last couple of weeks we've been looking at uh, different aspects of Christ being God's final word to us in the form of His Son. And uh, today we're going to continue that in the book of Hebrews. And just to start off, I, I just want to read the text for you in its fullness so that we know what we're looking at and, and uh, where we're going with it. So Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when He again brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. And and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the, of the earth, and the, heaven are the, work, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels... Has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? And they are not all ministering, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? This morning as we look at this text, we've been looking at uh, different aspects of it. Um, And a couple weeks ago we looked at the preparation of Christ and we saw that God spoke and he spoke through the fathers by the prophets, and uh, spoke to the fathers through the prophets, and he spoke in a lot of different ways and at different times, and uh, the Bible is just evidence of that. This is all God's word. It's, it's, he's speaking to us, and this was formed uh, over several thousand years by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we saw how God had prepared the coming of the Son, and then we saw the presentation of Christ in verse 2, when he said that he has spoken to us by his son. And we looked at that rather uh, in, in depth last night, or last week, and uh, the week before. And uh, the idea that he has spoken to us, it's his, his speaking is no longer going on. God is not actively speaking to us now through new divine revelation. He has spoken to us through his son and his word and uh, he may impress you with his spirit or something like that, lead you, guide you, but there's no divine uh, new revelation going on that we should add to the end of our Bibles. Um, that is complete. That, that phase was completed when the Son of God, when Jesus Christ was born and his ministry uh, uh, completed here on earth. And then we also looked at the preeminence of Christ last week, and we talked about his inheritance and his power and his glory and his nature and his authority and his atonement and even his exaltation. And we talked about what it means to sit down at the right hand of the Father. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign of authority. And it was a sign that his work was done. His work was completed. And we talked about that's why we don't have an altar here in our church. And we, I'm not a priest because we don't need to sacrifice anymore. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice on the cross. He even said, it is finished. So we don't continue that sacrifice as some believe. And then the last thing that meant when he sat down was that he sat down to intercede for us. 
And that should help you sleep at night, knowing that Christ himself is interceding on your behalf in prayer for you as one of his children. Um, that's, that's an incredible thought just in and of itself. But today I want to look at the superiority of Christ. The superiority of Christ. You know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in our, even in our churches today when it comes to the topic of angels. It's a lot of just misunderstanding. I mean, you can buy little angel trinkets and you see people have angel tattoos and all sorts of things. People pray to angels and do all sorts of crazy things today. But I, I want to give you a little biblical perspective before we even get started in the, in the text because you'll understand why as we work our way through this this morning. But remember that the book of Hebrews was primarily written to Jewish people. Some of those Jewish people had uh, left their, their faith in Judaism and went to Christ. So there were Christ followers. They were still Jewish, but there were Christ followers. And they, a lot of them uh, were under the thumb of the religious leaders and persecuted and thrown out of their families and lost their jobs. And they really had to count the cost of following Christ. And some of the religious leaders said, well, that's okay. You can have Jesus, but come on back to our side and, and you can do the circumcision. You can do some other things. And that will just add to you, your, your, your faith, which isn't true. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it may be, we don't know who it is, he was writing to primarily Jewish people, primarily Jewish believers, but also Jewish unbelievers as well. And uh, both of these groups are really pushed into a corner with the idea that there's this new covenant and it's better than the old covenant that you've been following. And that Christ is a better priest, he's a better mediator, he's the, the final priest and the final sacrifice of all time. You don't need to do anything more. And so throughout the book in Hebrews, as you read through it, you're going to find different comparisons between the old and new covenant. And some of it doesn't make sense unless you understand the foundation upon which the book was written. And so the first three verses, as we looked uh, the last couple of weeks, basically pointed out that Christ is superior to everything around us. Uh, after unfolding all of humans, uh, the, 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 uh, everything human around us, Christ rises above all that. And not only the material and the physical, but also even the spiritual. And that's kind of what he gets into this, this today. We're going to get into this, where he says basically, angel, he's even superior to angels. And you say, well, why does he have to teach that? Wouldn't they know that? Uh, no. And so I want you to understand a little bit about what angels are. Um, there are created beings who are higher than men and women, and that is that of angels. And the reason we know that is because in Hebrews 2.9, it says that Jesus, when he became a man, what it says, for a little while he was made a little lower, what? For a little while he was made lower than the angels. So when he became a man, he was on the, the classification scale, a little lower than the angels because he was in a human body. And uh, so angels on the creation scale are even above us. Uh, they're holy. Um, they're, they're powerful. They're wise. They don't have infirmities like we do. They're specially created spirit beings, and they're made by God before he made man. They are created beings. Um, they were, in fact, the Bible tells us, watching in the heavens when God created the world. So they were even around then. And uh, they're the higher order, as I said. But the Bible has a lot to say of it, about angels. There's 108 direct references to angels in the Old Testament and 165 in the New Testament. And what would a Christmas story be without angels? I mean, at every, you know, Christmas cantata, whatever, you always got angels flapping their wings around the, the, the uh, you know, the manger. I mean, that's just part of the, that's part of the parts that the kids play. Um, but the primary purpose of their creation, the reason God created them, was specifically for special worship and service to himself. That's why angels exist, for special worship and service to to God himself. Well, what are angels? Angels are spirit, be spirit beings, like I said. They don't have flesh. They don't have bones. But they do have bodies. The Bible is very clear about that. 
So we don't understand what kind of bodily form they have, but they do have um, bodies, and apparently they're, they're able to appear in human form. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, you've probably pondered this verse sometimes when you, when you entertain a stranger. It says you've got to be careful how you treat strangers because by entertaining a stranger, you might be entertaining an angel unaware without knowing it. Hebrews 13.2. And angels may also appear in other forms, not just in human bodies. They, they, uh, speaking of an angel, um, he appeared at, at Christ's resurrection. And in Matthew 28, verses 3 and 4, it says his appearance was like lightning. You ever seen a lightning strike? I remember one time going back to uh, Florida for the holidays. We had this huge lightning storm off the one side of the plane. And I have, I have probably a good 20 minutes on my little camera of just lightning strikes on the video. I mean, it was amazing. It says that he appeared like lightning and his garment was as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of him and they became like dead men. So that's the kind of effect that angel, this angel had on the men guarding the tomb. The angel appeared in this <clears throat> dazzling, bright glory. Angels are also highly intelligent, and they have emotions. How do you know that? Because in Luke 15, 10, it says they rejoice, for example, when a what? When a sinner is saved. It says the angels in heaven rejoice. So they have to have some form of emotion to be able to rejoice. They also can speak to men. We see that over and over in Scripture. We can, they can speak to men. The Apostle Paul says, Though we or an angel from heaven, in Galatians 1.8, should preach to you a gospel contrary to uh, that which we have preached to you. Don't have anything to do with them. So apparently angels can communicate with human beings. Angels don't marry, and they're unable to procreate. And in Colossians 1.16-17, it, it seems that all these beings, these angelic beings, were created simultaneously. This kind of leads us to believe that. The Bible makes no mention of angels being added to that which was originally created. So God somehow made all of them at once, and he created a certain number of them. And they all have a unique identity and a unique, well, they wouldn't have a personality, but just a, a unique identity. Um, angels are not subject to death. They can never die. Nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that they die or that they're annihilated or anything like that. Uh, remember, in the Old Testament, in, in Revelation, it tells us that a third of them fell from heaven in, out of rebellion trying to, uh, with, with uh, Lucifer trying to take over, but they still exist. That's what we call demons. The fallen angels are known as demons. Um, but each angel is a permanent creation of God and stands in personal relationship to his creator, good or bad. And so there's, we don't know the number of them, but there's, there's who knows, maybe trillions of them. We don't know. Angels were all created before men. Uh, Daniel 7.10 said, Thousands upon thousands attending him and myriads upon myriads standing before him. And John, even on the island of Patmos, in Revelation 5.11, he says, And the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands when he saw the, the heavenly hosts. So we don't have an exact number of how many numbers there are, but there's, there's a lot. Uh, according to Mark chapter 13, verse 32, in Jude 6, it says that the unfallen angels live in all the heavens. Remember, the, the heaven is where where God resides in a special way. That's called the third heaven. The second heaven is, is what we know um, is the, the spatial infinite heaven. And then the first heaven is all around the earth, what we're familiar with. And so when you hear those things of UFOs or extraterrestrial beings, or whatever, you know, it could very well be an angel that somebody saw, a bright light in the sky. Who knows? But... Angels are highly organized, from what we read in Scripture, and they're divided into ranks, just like the military. And it's no doubt a very complex organization. They have special classes of angels, cherubim, seraphim, and some of them are just described as living creatures. 
Uh, it says that apparently they've been given responsibility over thrones, over dominions, over principalities, powers, authorities. They're more powerful than men, as we've said. Ephesians 6, 10 and 12 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against angels, fallen angels. Okay, so that's, that's where we struggle in the, in the heavenlies. Uh, he- angels can also move and act with incredible speed. They're not omnipresent like God is. They're not everywhere at the same time. But somehow they can, they can move like that. Uh, sometimes they're pictured with wings. Sometimes they, uh, they're, they're always suggested as traveling pretty fast. Uh, some angels have names. You've heard of Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer. Michael is basically the head of the armies of heaven, and Gabriel is called the Mighty One. Lucifer is the name uh, Satan before he fell. And angels exist, like I said, to do God's bidding. They're there to serve and to worship God. They're both spectators and participants in everything that he does, both redemptive and as far as judgment goes as well. Um, they even ministered to Christ in his humiliation when, we, when he was on, here on earth and during his incarnation. Um, you remember at the conclusion of his temptation in the wilderness, what happened? It says the angels came and they ministered to him. Well, how did they do that? I don't know. It doesn't say. But they also ministered to God's redeemed by watching over the church. They assist God in answering prayer. They deliver us from danger. They give us encouragement. They protect children. Believe it or not, they also minister to the unsaved by announcing and proclaiming coming judgment. You say, well, what's this have to do with what we just read? Well, what you're going to find out is as we read through these verses 4 to 14, as we look at these, he quotes a lot from the Old Testament. And there's a lot of talk about angels here. And the reason he does that is because you have to understand the Jewish view of angels. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish, Jewish audience. And in the, the rabbinical writings and, and different things like that, what they would do is they would take the Old Testament, as usual, and they would um, kind of uh, add to it. And so they kind of came up with their own theology concerning angels. Most Jews believed that angels were very important in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. They were esteemed, and they, they believed that they were raised, in their minds, next to God, as far as a level, if you want to look at it that way. They believed that God was surrounded by angels, and that the angels were the instruments of bringing his word to men, and that working out his will in the universe, they had some of this right, and then some of it became more folklore, and it became worse and worse and worse, just like a lot of uh, different religions do. Um, They started coming up with all sorts of different things. Many believe that angels acted as God's senate or council and that he did nothing without consulting them. So you can see where they're kind of getting a little off base. For example, in the Old Testament in Genesis one twenty six, they say the us, let us make man in our image. That refers to angels, not God. God's referring to the angels there. Well, we know that not to be true in Scripture. It's talking about the Trinity. Um, some Jews believe that a group of angels objected to the creation of men. And as a result of that, they uh, were immediately annihilated. And others objected to the giving of the law, and they attacked Moses as he was trying to get the law going up the mountain. So you can see where none of this is in the Bible. They just started coming up with all these stories. And you notice that in Judaism, they have certain names for angels. They were giving such names as uh, Raphael and Uriel and Phanuel. They all ended in El, Gabriel, Michael, because El was the name for God, and it was used as an ending for each of the angels' names. And they believed that 200 angels controlled the movements of the stars, and one very special angel, the calendar angel, controlled the never-ending succession of the days and months and the years. So they totally got off base in their understanding of what angels. They went outside of Scripture. And whenever you do that, you're going to get in trouble. They believed in a mighty angel that took care of the seas and all, all sorts of weird stuff. 
many Jews believed in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that it was brought to them from God by angels. And so this exalted angels in the, 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 the Jews' mind, in the children of Israel, it exalted angels in their, mind, in, in their own mind, even to rival God on occasion. Um, if you look in, in Acts chapter 7, there's a, there's, during Stephen's sermon, he is, he's preaching, and he's talking about these stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. He says in chapter 7, verse 51 to 53, he says, "...are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did." And then he asks this, he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by, what's it say, angels, and yet did not keep it. See, that was part of their understanding. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed uh, should come to whom the promise has been made. So the Old Testament had brought to, was brought to man and maintained by angelic mediation. And so because the Jews knew this, they basically lifted the angels up right alongside of God, which is not the right thing to do. They actually worshipped angels. Uh, you've heard of Gnosticism. Gnosticism contains a belief that they need to worship angels. And even uh, Gnosticism reduces Christ to just that, an angel. In Colossians 2.18, Paul writes, and remember, he, that whole church was flirting with Gnosticism. He writes this, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worshipping of angels. So it was a real problem. And so they exalted angels up to the level of even God. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is say, wait, this isn't right. I have to have these Jewish Christians understand that Christ is better than all the bearers and the mediators of the Old Testament. And he's even better than the angels. He's superior to the angels because they didn't really believe that. And he quotes here in Hebrews seven different passages to establish that fact. That's why they're italicized in your Bible. If you read, you can find the the reference to all of them. Some writers believe this is why they don't believe that Paul uh, wrote this epistle. Some believe that he did, some don't. Uh, Because he, Paul, quotes more from the Hebrew text than from the Septuagint. And if you actually look at these quotations that you're, you're reading in your New Testament and you go back to where you find it in the Old Testament, it's, it's not always, it doesn't line up exactly. Well, why is that? Because they were reading from what we call the, the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It wasn't from the original Hebrew. And so there's always a little change there in the translation. And so... If that would have been the case, the Jews of the day would have said, oh, we're not going to believe this. You're not even quoting the Hebrew text. And Paul was perfectly capable of doing that. So if he wrote the book of Hebrews, he would have quoted exactly from the Hebrew text. So that kind of shows us that the writer of Hebrews didn't do that. So most likely, maybe it wasn't Paul. We don't know. The other problem that we have here in this this verse, verse 4, look at what it says. It says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in verse 4, it says, having become so much better than the angels. The King James translation says, being made, being made. And that's not correct. It should be the word to become. It's ginomai. It's, it's not the word that means to make or create. Jesus Christ always existed, right? He always existed. But he became better than the angels in his exaltation, implying that at one time he had been lower than the angels. And you say, well, wait a minute. Is God lower than the angels? Well, that's what Hebrews 2.9 2, said that we read. But see, the reference in, in verse 4 is to the incarnation as God's Son. 
the Son, as the Son, he became lower than the angels because he took on a physical body. Angels don't have that. But because of his faithfulness and his obedience and his fulfilling of God's plan, he was exalted even above the angels once again. He was exalted as the Son. A lot of people don't understand this, but you have to understand that technically, if you want to get technical, put on your thinking caps for a minute, technically Christ did not become the Son of God until his incarnation. Now that may sound like blasphemy in your ears as I'm saying that, but it's true. He did not technically become the Son of God until his incarnation. In other words, Christ was not the Son of God in eternity past. Was he God? Yes. Fully God. He was God. He was the second person of the Godhead. But he became identified as the Son. And as the Son, he was exalted above the angels. And so he became better than the angels again, though for a little while he had been made lower than the angels. And this section of Scripture kind of proves that point, and we're going to be looking at that. Five ways, his title, his worship, his nature, his existence, and his destiny. Why is Christ better than the angels? Well, first of all, because he has a greater title. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. It says, Having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. See, Jesus Christ is better than the angels because he has a more excellent name. He never said that to an angel. He never said, You are my son to an angel, and I have begotten you. He never said that. The answer is no, he never did that. Of no angel has that God ever said, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The angels were always ministers and messengers. Only Christ is the son. The angels were created servants. And when the eternal Christ came to earth as a servant, indeed the supreme servant as he was, he also assumed the title of God's son. He wasn't called God's son before his incarnation. And so it says that he has obtained a more excellent name than even the angels. We don't put much stock in names today. Um, Nicknames, things like that sometimes, but for the most part. But in biblical times, a name was oftentimes chosen to represent something. Maybe an aspect of a person's life or something like that. And the writer of Hebrews was well aware of that. And so he asked the question, to which of the angels did God ever say this? It's kind of a rhetorical question. That's taken out of Psalm 2.7. And in 2 Samuel 7.14, he says, And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall, what? Be a son to me. Notice that quotation from 2 Samuel. No single angel has ever been called a son of God. Now, collectively, we're called... We are called sons of God, children of God. Christians are. And so are angels. But not singularly. We're not separated out from that collective group and called angels are never called a son of God individually. Because they reflect him um, in a, as a group. But no ever, anywhere in scripture is an individual angel ever addressed as the son of God. Nor to any angel has God ever said that, today I have begotten thee. Because angels were not related to God in any such way other than his created beings. So the passage presents to its Jewish readers, these people who are grappling with where are the angels at here? Should we worship angels or whatever is going on? He's trying to give them the truth of that, that Christ as God's incarnate son is greater than the angels. See, when you call Christ the Son of God, that's his incarnate title. 
Even though his sonship was anticipated through the Old Testament, you can look at Proverbs 34 and other places, he didn't receive the title of the son until he was born into time. Up until then, he wasn't known as the son. Prior to that, he was basically the he was eternal God with God. The term the Son has only to do with Jesus Christ's incarnation. And a lot of times we, we miss that point. Uh, it's to say that God is Father and Jesus is Son, it's, it's God's way of helping us understand that relationship. <laughs> the first and second person of the Trinity. But we don't fully understand that. The Bible nowhere speaks of the eternal sonship of Christ. When his eternity is spoken of, if you look at verse 8, Hebrews 1.8, God says to him, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. When talking about Christ's eternity, the title God is used, always. Only when talking about his incarnation is the, son, is the term Son of God used. So that brings up the question, did not Christ always have a better name? Why does it say he has inherited here a more excellent name than they? Did he not always have a more excellent name? Yes, but really he obtained another. He was always God, but he became son of God during his incarnation when he was here on earth. So he hadn't always had that title. So eternally he is God, but only from his incarnation has he been called the Son of God. And that's an important point to make because you can misunderstand a lot of things if you don't get that right. Um, Since Jesus is the Son of God, he's obviously eternally... um, some people understand it this way, that that he's eternally inferior to God the Father. So Jesus, therefore, is not God, and he becomes less than God, and he's only God's Son, and so you have all these cultic beliefs today that don't believe that Jesus is God based on that misunderstanding. Before that, he was eternal God. He's always been God. He'll always be God. But there's no eternal God. Son, always subservient to God, less than God. That's, that's, that's a misunderstanding. Now, it says there that he has a greater title. Okay? He has a greater title. Um, in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh. Christ is not referred to as the Son by John until he has, is made flesh. Then he's referred to as the Son of God. Secondly, not only because he has a greater title, um, and, and we see the, the, the Son of God in, in two ways, just to kind of stay on this point for a second. First of all, through his virgin birth. All right, through his virgin birth. That's what kind of relates uh, Jesus as the Son. For him to become the son, there's two things that had to happen. First of all, he had to be born of a virgin that was prophesied in the word of God. In Luke uh, one thirty-five, it tells a story. Uh, in Luke uh, thirty-two, uh, one thirty-two, it says that he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. In Luke 3.22, it says, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Only after Christ's incarnation did he say, This is my son. Never called him his son before that. And then also his resurrection was part of that as well. And so his sonship came into full blossom after he was born of a virgin. He took on a body. He lived for 30-some years, and then he died, and then he was raised again. Having done all that, he has a way far more excellent name than the angels. The second thing there is he has a greater... Christ is greater than the angels because he is worshipped. In verse 6 of Hebrews 1, it says, And when he brings, again, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, Jesus Christ is not only greater than the angels because he's God's son, he has a greater title, but he's also greater because he is worshipped. 
Even though Christ humbled himself in the form of a human being, even though he was made for a little time lower than the angels, because angels don't have bodies, the angels are to worship him. And if angels are to worship him, then he must be greater than they. And if he's greater than they, his covenant is greater than the one they brought. So the new covenant is greater than the old. And so you might say that, you know, Christianity is, Jewish people may not like to hear this, but greater than Judaism. Because it puts the pieces of the puzzle together. And it's through Christ that we're saved. Where it says there, let all the angels worship him, that's from Psalm 97.7. The psalmist predicted that all the angels were going to worship the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. Um, from the, the, the incarnate Son in glory, angels are commanded to worship Him. And that's what they're, they're commanded to do. Um, notice it says there, the firstborn. The firstborn. Some people have a problem with this, and a lot of cults have used this as a proof text to kind of say that, well, look, Jesus was created like everybody else. Well, it's not talking of that, and we kind of gone over that in the past. Um, firstborn really means, has nothing to do with time. It has everything to do with position. He is born above everyone else. He is the chief title, the chief person, the chief um, son of God. And you can look in the Old Testament. Esau, for instance, was older than Jacob, but Jacob was the firstborn. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily have to do with who was literally born first. That's not what he's talking about. So not only is Christ greater because of his um, title, and not only because the angels worshipped him, but also because he has a superior nature. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Jesus is more superior than the angels because of his nature. Uh, in verse 7, it says, The Holy Spirit shows the basic difference between the nature of angels and that of the Son. That word makes there is to create or to make. Since Christ created the angels, according to Colossians 1.16, he is obviously superior to them. And that's his argument. Not only were they created by him, but they're his possessions, the Bible says. All the angels are. They are his created servants, his ministers, his winds, the flame of fire. And you can see this borne out through the Father's claim of Jesus' deity. In verse 8, there at the beginning, he says, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's the Father calling the Son God. It, it kind of expands the difference between Christ's nature and the nature of angels. The angels were created. Christ was not. One of the most important statements in all of Scripture that Jesus Christ is God eternal. Always has been, always will be. Those who say that Jesus was just a man or one of the many angels or one of the prophets or whatever, um, Scripture has much to say for those folks. It puts the curse of God on them, anathema. That Jesus is no less than God himself. So the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father acknowledging God the Son. Great proof text for somebody who says, Well, I don't believe Jesus is God. Well, how do you explain that? So the Father himself calls Jesus his Son. Jesus' own claims of deity are throughout Scripture. Um, John 5.18 it says, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what Jesus was doing. 
And in John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. I mean, you can't get any more clearer. The Jewish leaders well understood what he was saying because they were going to kill him as a result of that. They thought that was blasphemy. In John 10, 33, it says, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So that's, that shows us that Jesus himself claimed to be deity, claimed to be God. Not only that, but the apostles themselves claimed that as well. In Romans 9, 5, it says, Paul wrote this, Who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. Uh, over and over again, you find it in 1 Timothy uh, 3.16, different places where it talks about um, Christ being revealed in the flesh and that he is literally God. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even in his letter, Uh, First letter in 1 John 5.20, John says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You don't need to look anywhere else, folks. He's the one. It also shows us there that he's a lover of righteousness in verse 8. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and righteous scepter, and the, the scepter of his kingdom. And thou hast uh, loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above your companions. That reveals more of Jesus' actions and his motives and, and just kind of showed that he loved righteousness, that he truly was God. And they would understand that. God never varies. God never moves. God never becomes something more or becomes something less. God is who he is. That can't change. Over and over again, we see that throughout Scripture. And that should give us hope that we serve a God who who doesn't come up with a prescribed way of, of us having our sins forgiven. And then, you know, we do that. And they say, oh, you know, I changed my mind. <laughs> Instead of that... I want you to do this now. I mean, there are religions like that, beloved. You, you fulfill a certain obligation. Well, then that's not good enough, so you've got to go do something more. And they just keep on adding more and more and more onto the, the backs of their followers. And it becomes a burden. Aren't you glad that in Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all of our needs met as far as redemption, as far as our, our, our sustenance, everything is sufficient to meet our needs in Christ Jesus. We don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to go out and compare him to other gods, small g. In verse 9 there, one, he says, Therefore, God, thy God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above your companions. He is exalted. He's anointed above all others. That's the God we serve. That's the God that was born that Christmas morning in that little manger. That's the God, the eternal God of the the Trinity who became the Son of God on that day because he took on human flesh. Well, he's also greater than the angels, not just because he has a greater title or that he's worshipped or he has a superior nature but also he has a superior existence look at what it says in verses 10 and 12 of hebrews 1 it says for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory and to make a captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sacrifices and those who are being sanctified, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of your assembly, I will sing praise to you. The fourth way here is that Jesus is superior to the angels because of his existence. 
John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the what? The Word. One day this earth will be destroyed. One day all the elements that we see around us will be destroyed with intense heat. That's what 2 Peter 3.10 says. It's all going to be burned up. Revelation 6.14 says, And the sky will be split apart like a scroll, and when, when it was rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That's part of the tribulation. All that stuff is going to happen. Stars are going to fall to earth. I mean, horrible things are going to be happening. And it's going to show us that everything around us is literally temporary. The creation will be changed, but not the creator. See, that's where our hope lies. Because he says there, thy years will not come to an end. Christ is eternal. He never changes. Hebrews 13.8 says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Men come and go. Worlds come and go. Leaders come and go. Stars come and go even. Angels were even subject to what you might say the elements of sin because of their fall. But Christ never changes. He's never subject to change. He never alters. He's eternally the same. And therefore, He's superior to the angels in title and worship and nature and existence. And the last way He's superior is His destiny. In verses 13 and 14, it says, But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here within only the first chapter is the the seventh Old Testament quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. And he, he wants to spell out very clearly that Christ is superior to angels because of his destiny. No angel has ever been promised, beloved, a place next to God at his right hand, ever. Only the Son of God will sit there. Only Jesus Christ. The destiny of Jesus Christ is ultimately everything in the universe will be subject to him. That's why it's so important to understand that the day and age we live in is an age of grace. This is a time during the church age where God has extended His hand to us, His love to us, His message of hope to us in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's pointed out to us clearly that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We need a Savior. We can't really argue with that. We're not going to save ourselves. We're not perfect. But Philippians 2.10 says there's going to come a time When ultimately, it says, at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, even those who are under the earth. What's that saying? Jesus Christ in God's plan is destined to be the ruler of the universe, and everything that inhabits it will worship him. That's his destiny. He delivers up the kingdom of God, to the God the Father, and, and when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power, he's going to reign, and he's going to rule with an iron fist, the Bible says. And all those things are going to be subject to him. See, the Son of God is, you might say, subordinate to the Father in the fact that he is the Son The Son Himself also subjected Himself to the One, to the Father. But only in relationship to His Son. That doesn't make Him any less God. If you can understand that, you're far superior in intellect than I am. Because you, know, you look at the Trinity and you look at the relationship between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and God the Father, all that, your mind just goes berserk. Because you can't understand it. But the Bible does say when he comes at his second coming, he's not going to come as a savior. He's going to come as a judge. He's going to come in glory. And at that point, 
he's, it's going to be too late. Look over at Revelation chapter 19. It gives us a picture of the destiny of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19. Look at verse 15 with me. This is speaking of the Son of God. If you look up verse 13, it says, He was clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Verse 15, Now out of His mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it He should strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the... Fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe, look at what it says, and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The destiny of Jesus Christ, the little baby in the manger, his destiny is eternal reign over the new heavens and the new earth and all created everything. And he compares that with the destiny of angels. Back to Hebrews, he says, are they not just ministering spirits? What do they do? They just go out and they minister on God's behalf. And they minister for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. See, Jesus' destiny is to reign. The angel's destiny is to serve forever those who are heirs of salvation. I mean, think about that. You know, you think about heaven, you think about, you know, all the, the glory things of heaven... Do you ever think about that, that you're going to be served by angels in heaven? You're going to be ministered to by angels in heaven for all of eternity? Amazing. All that is wrapped up in this little baby in the manger. So in the Jewish mind, they were equating angels with God. And the writer is saying, don't even go there. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, even as the Son of God, when He became the Son of God, when He took on the body in human form, God in a bod, as some have said. When He did that, yet for a little while, while He was here on earth and in His body, He was made a little lower than the angels. But He is far superior to them in every way. He's called the Son, Lord God. By his divine works, he creates, he sustains, he governs, he redeems, he purges sin. He's the one by divine worth that we are to worship. We don't worship angels, beloved. We don't worship any other being other than God. And by his divine attributes of omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, unchanging, he's eternal. In all these ways, Jesus Christ is superior to these angels. Well, why is that important? Why is that so important? Close with these verses out of Hebrews chapter 2. He kind of wraps it up in the next chapter, the verses 1 through, th- 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, because Christ is so superior to everything we know around us, including the angels, he says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. He's saying, don't you get mixed up with what these other people are telling you. You stick to the word of God. Verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken, what? By the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. If God expected such a positive response to the law, which came through the ministry, the mediation of angels, what response would he expect from us concerning the gospel of Christ which came to us through Christ himself 
I don't know about you, but that causes me to pause and to say, am I responding properly? Am I responding in a way that would honor and glorify this, this Son of God that is ultimate in every way? And do I really believe that enough to go out and tell others that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through Him? I pray that this morning you clearly understand that Christ is far superior than anything, anything that we could ever even dream of. And yet, He has an intimate relationship with us. And that intimate relationship is available to all who come to Him and are willing to confess their sin and turn to Him and ask Him for forgiveness. He'll answer that prayer. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, someone has said that Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. That he put on humanity that we might put on divinity. That he, becomes, that he became the son of man that we might become sons of God. That he was born contrary to the laws of nature, that he lived in poverty, that he was reared in obscurity, and that only once did he ever cross a boundary of the land in which he was born, and that was in his childhood. He didn't have any wealth. He didn't have any influence. He had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were fairly inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. And in manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of all the world could never hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many followers and students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. See, it's this Jesus Christ who is the star of astronomy. He's the rock of geology. He's the lion and the lamb of zoology. He's the harmonizer of all discords and disagreements, and he's the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone. Yet our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. And beloved, death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. So this Jesus, this Jesus Christ, this baby born of a virgin in a lonely manger in the cool of the night in the prophesied town of Bethlehem. It's this Jesus whom we worship. It's this Jesus who provides a way of salvation for mankind. It's this Jesus who longs for you to know him in a personal way. He desires for you to turn from your sin, to turn to his unmatched love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. I pray this morning if you have yet to experience God's incredible gift, the gift of his only son to us, that you would cry out to him right now. That you would tell him the burdens that you're carrying. That you would tell him the sins that hold you captive. That you would tell him your desire to follow him as Lord and Savior. Simple prayer from the Bible is all you need. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cry out to him. This Christmas could be the best Christmas that you have ever experienced. Because it might just be the first Christmas that you could not only receive the gift that God is offering you in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's through that gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we gain access to the Father and to salvation itself. Lord, we pray this morning that you would minister to our hearts. I pray that we would prepare our hearts for 
the incarnation, the celebration of your son come to earth in the form of Christmas holiday as we know it. Lord, I pray that we'd use this week as believers to make sure that that message rings clear from our lips. That it's not just about lights and candy canes and ornaments, but it's about a gift that you gave to us that is far superior than any gift we would ever receive. I pray that each one here in this room would know and receive that gift personally. Thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.